The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. This is uh, Palm Sunday, and it marks the beginning of the Holy Week. Uh, leading up to the Easter celebration. It's kind of interesting that in our modern times, um, Christmas has become probably the biggest sort of Christian holiday in our calendar. Uh, But when you look at the weight of sort of Christmas and Easter, there's no contest. Uh, Easter and the resurrection is by far the more emphasized and highlighted event. Uh, The birth of Jesus is important, but it at least in terms of the scriptural witness, it doesn't get nearly the focus that the resurrection does. And so in some ways, I think we kind of have this backwards in the church where we um, set up Christmas to be this huge holiday. Uh, and yet sometimes I think um, Easter can really take a back seat to that. But um, I think Easter is such an important holiday for, the, for our faith. And that's why I think as we walk into this Holy Week, We just really encourage all of us as a church family to consider um, what we can do to sort of make that week special. Uh, Maybe it means turning on the TV a little less, uh, watching a little less Netflix, um, maybe not going to your phone uh, constantly and checking social media, uh, but spending some time in in, uh, reading scripture, in maybe even reading a good Christian book, or some. there's plenty of uh, great devotionals. Uh, intended for this Holy Week. And so we just invite you to sort of get into a little bit more of an extended period of prayer and meditation on the resurrection of Christ as we think about heading toward next week in the Easter celebration. Um, We're continuing on in this Lent series called Glory, and it's the third message of four. And the title for the message today is Steadfast and Immovable. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer and then we will um, get into it. Years ago, Father, as we um, think about what happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem with your son riding uh, into the streets of Jerusalem uh, on that donkey and how um, the people were crying out Hosanna and yet in just a little while they would also say crucify him. Um, We come to that realization of how fickle our hearts could be in. how we have so many agendas when we come to what we seek from you and what we want from you. But we pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would capture our hearts and show us the true meaning of this holiday and what it is that you are calling us forth to do in our lives. Help us to understand the weight of what it means when Jesus declared that the kingdom of God had come to our world. And so we pray that we would be a part of that kingdom and that there would be true submission in our hearts to the only deserving king over our lives, Jesus Christ. For we pray it all in his name. Amen. I don't know if any of you have ever played this video game called The Sims. I don't know. Has anyone ever gotten into that game? Um, it, it's actually one of the most popular game series in history. If you add up all the different versions of it that had come out. And what was so unique about this game, The Sims, is most games are about like competing with like, in that you just basically created these virtual people in a virtual world, and there was no scoring or anything like that. You literally just watched them live their lives, and you kind of um, enjoy 
watching these people falling in love and raising children and have drama at work and all of these things, you know? Well, in 2002, uh, EA released an online version of the game called The Sims Online, uh, which eventually was changed to EA Land. Um, I couldn't find a high-resolution image of EA Land, uh, and so this is just actually, I apologize, just a regular screenshot of the regular game. Uh, but what was unique was with EA Land, you actually create a sim in this virtual world, and then you interact with other live people all around the world through your sims. And it ended up creating this really tightly knit, uh, very devoted fan following, fan base. But the problem was that fan base wasn't big enough. And so it was never profitable. And so finally in 2008, after six years of operation, uh, they decided to shut down EA Land. And I want to play for you some audio from the final moments on the last day when they pulled the plug on EA Land. Uh, the main voice that you're going to be hearing is actually uh, the DJ of the radio station. They actually had a real radio station on EA Land that you could listen to while you're playing the game. And so let me, let's just listen to this audio that comes from a podcast called 99% Invisible uh, with Roman Mars. And you can kind of listen to uh, some narration through these final moments of a video game right before it's killed. Okay. Sure. What is it like to be there at the, in the last minute and when it shuts down? So the tape is rolling in the last few hours of EA Land are being recorded, and the most dedicated diehard users are there, exchanging virtual hugs and reminiscing. The players are typing messages that appear like comic book word bubbles. You hear all these avatars crying. And you also hear all the coos and moans in the gibberish language of the game known as Simlish. And you know, they, they sound like they're going to be bummed and... Uh, and everything, but it's not like a big pity party. But then toward the the end of, of the night, there's this radio station that you could listen to in the game called Charmed Radio. And they had this DJ there uh, named Spike. He is sort of the only voice that you end up hearing at the end of the world. And as soon as he starts talking, you understand what is being lost. Hey guys, the last time you're going to hear me speak, well... The last time before TSO goes down. I just want to thank you all for subscribing. It's been an amazing experience, it really has. And I promise I wouldn't make myself cry, but I can't. I can't stress enough how much you guys have meant to me over the past however many years it's been. It really has been awesome. And uh, some people don't get attached to things, but uh, when you make make friends, other people live in this game. It's actually really hard. So, uh, I'm gonna play the last song. It's Sarah Brightman and Andrea Bocelli. Time to say goodbye. <laughs> Hopefully, you guys will uh, keep in touch. My Yahoo ID is one two three four five. Anyway, one two three four five. Good luck in life, everybody, and uh, best wishes. I love you all, and uh, it's been great knowing you. Take care, guys, and uh, let's just, I just want to, if you haven't got a drink, just propose a toast to Parazad, who's been absolutely amazing. Parazad, we couldn't have done this without you. Thank you. You get this feeling like being on the 
deck of the Titanic. Anyone who actually stayed to the end was very much invested in the game on an emotional level. When they pulled the plug on the server, bits and pieces flickered and all the people froze and blinked out of existence. The actual ending was, was uh, you know, not with a bang, but with a whimper. And the last thing that they saw was basically just an error message, a server disconnect message. And then the world ended. That's what the death of a world sounds like. I love that line. It was like being on the deck of the Titanic. Uh, Just moments before it sank, right? I don't know if you've ever been devoted to a video game that closed like that, that shut down. I have had that experience several times, in fact. Um, All those hours of emotional investment and time and maybe even a lot of money. And suddenly in an instant, it, that whole world just disappears right in front of your eyes. And, you know, sort of watching these people mourn the death of a virtual world invites us all, I think, you know, some of you may be thinking, those loser gamers, you know, like, I don't know, some of you don't play video games and maybe you have no empathy <laughs> for people who would cry over the death of a virtual world. But I I think it actually invites all of us to think more broadly about the things that consume our lives. And and I want to begin this message by asking you, are you investing your life in the things that will last? It's a sobering thought that you may wake up one day and realize that you've been living for all the wrong things, things that don't have lasting value things that ultimately don't impact eternity. And so I want to talk today about how a proper understanding of our world and our future ought to affect the way that we live our lives in the present. I've been pointing out throughout this series uh, how vague and fuzzy sometimes, and truthfully, how outright wrong our picture of the afterlife tends to be. The classic picture is of people floating around on clouds as spirits or ghosts. And we commonly talk about dying and going to heaven. But as I pointed out last week, the Bible doesn't actually use that language, dying and going to heaven. Uh, to talk with God life after death. The Bible does describe a period right after death where we will be with God in a spiritual realm where we very well may be away from our bodies, but the Bible also says that that is only temporary. The event that becomes the entire focus of the Christian hope for the future is the return of Jesus, at which time we will experience resurrection. Resurrection. And what resurrection means is that we who are in Christ will be given a new glorified body with which to enter eternity a physical body just like the ones we have right now that we can touch. We will not be disembodied spirits floating around in some spiritual realm for eternity. That's not the future that the Bible describes. 
And so in those physical resurrection bodies that we will be given, we will live for eternity with God in a new earth. In other words, it's not so much about dying and going to heaven, but it is about heaven coming down to a renewed earth. This earth that we live in right now. Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. When we think of the idea of a new earth, I think the typical picture we imagine is of this world being sort of wiped out, and then a new earth, a new world replacing it. It's sort of like the idea of a new car that replaces your current car. Just literally a brand new car. But, This word new can also mean that it is something that has been transformed. There is a newness, although that same original object is still there. It's not so much like buying a new car to replace your current one, as much as maybe the picture that we're given here is of an antique that is being restored so that it is like new. Or maybe a better word to capture it is for it to be renewed. Look at the way Paul describes what's going to happen in our future in Romans 8, verse 20 to 24. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, I understand some of the language of these verses is kind of confusing, but the point I'm making here is this, is that Paul is not painting a picture of a creation, which is this world that we're inhabiting right now, dreading its total destruction. That is not the picture of the future. It is of a creation that is eagerly awaiting its restoration and renewal when the resurrection occurs. Paul is talking about this earth that we're living in right now, waiting for its renewal, not to be wiped out like a slate being cleaned. Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 says this, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. You see? That is the picture of heaven coming down to this earth. It says, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Heaven coming down to earth to renew it and transform it utterly. You know, some of us, when we read 1 Corinthians 15, um, body, there's an argument made that, you know, doesn't it actually say that in the resurrection we're not going to have physical bodies? Uh, if we look at verses 42 to 44, look at what it says. So will it, be, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. 
If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Some English translations actually translate the word natural body as physical body. So it says there is a physical body and then there is a spiritual body. And a lot of people assume that what Paul is making a contrast with here is between a natural or physical body that we have now in this life and a spiritual or non-physical body that we're going to have in the afterlife for eternity. But when you actually look at the Greek words here, and I try my best not to look at the Greek and say, well, look at this Greek word, because I believe pretty much everything we need to understand can largely be understood through the English translations. But I do feel like there are times when we can actually look at the Greek and it can be incredibly helpful for us to understand what maybe the original intent of the message was here. And if you look at these two key Greek words, does that argument of material versus immaterial body. The Greek word for that word natural here is actually psychikos. And the word that is used here for the spiritual body is pneumatikos. Now, do you notice something about these two words? They have the exact same ending, don't they? Ikos, I-K-O-S. These are adjectives. And when adjectives in this Greek ending show up, they basically never are used to describe what a substance of something is. It's almost always used to describe the power that animates the noun that it's modifying. Okay? Now, I know I'm getting a little technical here, and if you're saying this is way too early in the morning for this, it's okay, just bear with me for a couple minutes, and then we'll move on, okay? N.T. Wright illustrates it like this. We can ask of two different boats. What are these boats made of? Is it a wooden boat or is it an iron boat? Okay? And that's not what these adjectives in the Greek are trying to help us distinguish. We can also ask of these ships, how are these ships powered? Is it by sail or is it by steam engine? And that is the comparison that is being made here in these verses. The second question is addressing what's the issue in this 1 Corinthians 15. What is the empowering force for our bodies here on earth and the bodies we will be given in the resurrection? And so when we talk about the body empowered by the psyche, psychikos, in this life, what Paul is saying is there is the life force that is in these present bodies which are powerless against illness, injury, decay, and death. But when we talk about our resurrection bodies, this pneumaticos, we're talking about bodies that will now be energized by a different life force because it will be energized by nothing less than this Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and therefore will be incorruptible, undecaying, and never to die. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15.50, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Now, this sounds like it's refuting my argument, doesn't it? Paul says it just blatantly, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But right after that, he says in verses 51 to 53, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he shall trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be 
changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying that we're still going to have physical bodies, but these bodies will be changed, transformed by the Spirit of God so that we will be clothed with immortality. It's interesting that the Bible tells us we're not inherently immortal beings, but it is God alone who is immortal and who imparts to us immortality through His Spirit for eternity. And the question is this, which is really going to be the point of my message this morning. After Paul lays out this whole big picture in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection that we are hoping for, the question is, what is his conclusion? What is his end statement of all of this? And if you sort of follow the logic of it, you could almost imagine that maybe what Paul would say is, therefore, in light of this hope of the resurrection, we've got these bodies that are breaking down, they're ridden with diseases, and life is tough, and we live in a broken world, but what we have to hope for is this resurrection, when Jesus comes again, make it through this life, because life is hard, and it feels like there's no progress, and for every step forward, you're taking two steps back, but just get through this life, because what we have to await is this glorious resurrection. It's as if the resurrection represents one big reset button that God is going to hit, and we're all going to get this great fresh start, you know? And so do whatever you need to do to survive this life, and we've got eternal bliss waiting for us in heaven, in the resurrection. But what's interesting is that's actually not what Paul concludes with when he talks about the resurrection. In fact, he says the exact opposite. His conclusion in light of the resurrection is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, Paul is making a tight connection between the kingdom work that we're engaged in in this life and what we're going to experience in the resurrection life that is to come. In other words, what he seems to be saying is this. Keep fighting the good fight and living for God's kingdom because there is a purpose for all this thriving, striving, and struggle in the life to come. It's going to make a difference. In other words, there may be a lot more continuity with the way that we live our lives right now and the life that we're going to experience in eternity than we realize. And I'm going to just basically outline two of them for you this morning. One area may be that there will be continuity in our growth towards spiritual maturity between this life and the life that is to come. The Bible makes it absolutely clear that God's primary agenda in our life is to make our character to be more Christ-like so that we are fit to reign with Him in this new earth. This is the whole point of discipleship. Dallas Willard puts it like this, what God gets out of our lives and indeed what we get out of our lives is simply the person we become. It is God's intention that we should grow into the kind of person he could empower to do what we want to do 
then we are ready to reign forever and ever. Romans 8, 28 to 29 affirms this truth. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for son, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What Paul is saying here is that everything that God orchestrates in your life has a singular purpose to conform you to the character of Jesus, to make you like him. But here is the problem with that. What would be the point of all of the struggles that we would endure in our efforts to grow spiritually if in the resurrection, God just hits the reset button? Dallas Willard uh, argues that many people think of the resurrection as what he calls a cosmic car wash. And what he means by it is this. It actually doesn't, according to this view, it actually doesn't matter how much you grow spiritually in this life. What happens is that in the resurrection, the resurrection is the great equalizer. And now in the resurrection, all of us instantaneous will be completely Christ-like in every way imaginable. And so again, the message is this. Just get through this life any way you can. And then when Well, I think a strong case could be made that if that's going to be the case, then truthfully, why waste your time trying to grow spiritually in this life when it's so hard, when it's going to be instantly easy in the next life? Gary Black Jr. says this, Thus the assumption goes, we begin eternity from the very moment we, quote, open our eyes or wake up in heaven as shiny new spiritual beings, utterly whole, lacking in nothing, in a state as if our sin and its effects have left no impact on our lives or perhaps never existed at all. Such a belief system drains much, if not most, of the motivation away from engaging in the difficult, slow, and patient process of spiritual formation and character development while on earth. Instead, all the cosmic car wash requires is for us to hang on by our fingernails, keeping hold of our systems of sin management until we die, and the car wash will take care of the rest. And you could say, yeah, but... Doesn't the Bible itself sort of argue for a cosmic car wash? After all, in heaven, it's going to be a place where there is no sin, isn't it? Where there will be no more tears? So how could it be otherwise? Uh, Willard argues that we can think of our life on earth as like a circle. If our life is represented by this circle. And within that circle, there are these stains which sort of represent the areas of our life that are still dominated by sin, controlled by sin. So this is sort of the life we experience now in this world. But he says, in the resurrection, we will be made perfect. Those stains will be removed. We will be sinless. But as you can see, it's still kind of a dented, a beat-up circle, okay? It's not quite there yet, meaning that one of the things we may even possibly experience in the eternal state 
is the sense that we are actually still growing though we are sinless. We may still have room for growth. Um, In other words, in heaven there may still be opportunities to grow in courage and generosity and love, even though we enter heaven sinless. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7 to 8, which I think may affirm this view of it. It says, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness is you for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, if this cosmic car wash view is right, then I can't make sense of this verse. Why does any godliness I attain in this life have any ramifications for the eternal life? If it's just all about washing the slate clean and we all just are instantly equal to each other in the exact same way. But I wonder if instead what the Bible is trying to argue is that there is actually a sense in which the progress we're making in the spiritual journey toward Christ-likeness is continued even in the next life. Now, listen, I want to acknowledge that there is a degree of speculation here. Uh, And there are other verses that I could pull, but I'm just not going to do it for the sake of trying to move on and cover some other things. Uh, But I think it's worth reflecting on that because I do sense that this sense of the divine or this cosmic car wash is something that does actually demotivate a lot of Christians to say, you know, how much do we actually really grow? How much do we really become like Christ in this lifetime? Truth is, does it even matter? Let's just do what we need to do to get to heaven and then God is just going to fix everything for us. But maybe what instead he's saying is this, but in the life to come. Then the other continuity that I think Scripture teaches us between this life and the next is this, that there will also be continuity in our kingdom work for the Lord. The Bible makes it clear that heaven is not going to be a place of eternal leisure where all we're going to sit around and do is eat great food, play our harp, and I don't know, what, skip stones? Um, Revelation 5, verse 9 to 10 says this, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That's a picture of the eternal state. And what it's saying is, we're going to be serving God and reigning with Him in some capacity. We don't really know fully what that means right now, but it's clear that it's not just about sitting around in an endless vacation. And what the Bible also says is that kingdom work that we will be doing in heaven begins now in this present life. In other words, what, what we're invited to do is connect this idea of our work is not in vain with what I think Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what the Bible seems to be saying is this, is to be a citizen of the kingdom of God is not to live a separated life of otherworldly disengagement with this life, this world, and the people that surround us. 
But the picture found over and over in Scripture is this, is that it is God's will that you be a part of what he is doing, renewing this creation and restoring it by your prayers and your obedience. We are partnering with God in that work. In other words, that's one of the whole points of our salvation is that now God is enlisting you to be a part of the renewing work of this creation, this earth, this world. If the entire goal of your salvation is just to get away from hell and to make sure that when you die, you end up at the right place, then what I think Bible was saying to us is you missed the whole point of heaven. It's interesting that when you look in the Old Testament, Israel seems to have made that mistake. Because when they became God's chosen people, they didn't understand the calling that was accompanying their salvation. All people saw was an opportunity to actually look down on other nations because they were God's chosen people. And so God says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49 verse 6, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In other words, God was rebuking his people and saying, you are thinking so small. All you care about is your own life and how happy you are that God is with you. But he says, do you not understand that my plan involves so much more than just getting you guys to heaven, but to actually use you to be a blessing to the whole world? In other words, heaven is only a small part of a much bigger picture of what God is doing in our world, and he enlists us to be a part of it. N.T. Wright compares this way that we tend to view salvation as only for our personal benefit and us getting to heaven, like giving a child a baseball bat as a gift. And because the kid thinks that it's his gift and nobody else's, he doesn't play with anybody else. He just sits with his baseball bat by himself. And that's a ridiculous picture, isn't it? Because you can't play baseball by yourself. You need other people. That's a greater picture for what I have for your life. And it involves evangelism. There's no doubt about it. It is about us sharing our faith verbally with others to tell them about the good news of the gospel. But I would argue the implications of this are so much greater than just evangelism. It has such profound implications for how we engage with this environment with racial inequality, with human trafficking, and all of these other social justice issues that, frankly, for many of us in the church, we don't see the point. I think that the, the truth is for a lot of Christians is we don't see the point of environmentalism, right? Because we say, hey, man, the mothership is going to come and beam us up. Who cares what we do to this earth? God is going to renew it anyway. And that couldn't be further from the truth of, I think, what God is talking about. Because God is saying, I am renewing all things and I am using my church to be a part of that renewal work. I have to be honest, I, I think I am preaching to myself because the truth is, I think that when I really am honest with myself, I'm pretty jaded about a lot of these things. I am not very politically active. There was actually a season when I was very politically active, but I came, became very cynical about politics. And I kind of look at the Republicans, and I look at the Democrats, and I say, you both stink, you know? And so the truth is, I don't want to get involved with politics. 
And I, I look at everything from the Black Lives Matter movement to the Me Too movement and all that. It's just overwhelming sometimes. I say, do I really feel like we can change this stuff? Do I really have any hope that the races in this world will be reconciled? Do I really believe we can make a dent in sexual immorality and all of these other things like the abuse of women and things like that? And I think Scripture categorically argues that as God's people, we should not disengage with these issues. We should not pull away and just say, listen, let's just wait for Jesus to come back. And he'll fix this whole mess himself. N.T. Wright says this, How does believing in the future resurrection lead to getting on with the work in the present? Quite straightforwardly, The point of the resurrection, as Paul has been arguing through the letter, is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. God will raise it to new life. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. And if this applies to ethics as in 1 Corinthians 6, it certainly also applies to the various vocations to which God's people are called. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Now, there's a mystery there that I don't understand fully myself. But what Scripture seems to be saying to us is, as we are agents of change in this world, there is something about this work that we're doing in this present life that's going to carry over into the next life. And I don't know what that looks like, but that means as you fight for the rights of the marginalized, as you work toward racial reconciliation, as you fight for social justice, as you defend the widow and the orphan, God says that somehow that is all playing a part of his work ultimately in renewing creation. Isaac who was born really premature and weighed only around three pounds. And he spent weeks in the ICU because he ended up having some internal bleeding. And as a newborn, he went into shock. And some of the doctors basically um, said, you know, he's got some major liver defect. And we don't think that he's going to live past the age of 10. Probably going to die. And, uh, you know, understandably, uh, he and his wife were devastated. And this is what Sky said. He said, looking back, that season did not cause me to question my Christian vision of the future. Instead, it caused me to question the usefulness of my Christian faith in the present. I still believed Christ would redeem all things and that heaven would someday be reality. But with a sick and possibly dying child, a grieving wife, and an angry soul, I needed to see evidence of the garden city now. 
It wasn't enough for Christianity to offer a hope for tomorrow. My weakening faith, like the faith of so many others of my generation, was searching for evidence of God's renewal today. That became my prayer. I needed my eyes open to see that God was with us. And the power of his resurrection was at work in the ordinary brokenness of my world. He answered that prayer. And the way that God interestingly answered that prayer was through fellow believers, the church, who came around his family in this amazing moment of need. And he said that Christian doctors not only provided medical help, but they stood over my child and prayed desperately for him in that NICU. And he said that the people began showering them with balloons and flowers and toys and handmade blankets. Women came to voluntarily rock their son so that they could get some rest. And then Jitani writes this. Unlike the teddy bears and flowers, many of the gifts we received were very practical. We did not cook a meal for two months. Food arrived at our door every day from friends at church and sometimes from strangers who'd heard about our need. Others cared for our older daughter so we could spend more time at the hospital. Anonymous checks came to assist with medical bills, and some came with notes explaining that God had placed it upon their hearts to help. In our scarcity, these generous gifts were glimpses of abundance. Through these people and many others who faithfully engaged their callings, God was helping me see the garden within the wilderness. He was sure that he was at my hope could withstand the reality of this fallen and fearsome world and that he was at work making heaven a reality even in the darkness of those days. Isaac was eventually discharged and is today actually a healthy teenager. The doctors had actually gotten the diagnosis a bit wrong and it turned out he didn't have a fatal liver disease. But what I see here is this beautiful picture of what it means for the church to embody the kingdom of God. To show the difference we can make in the lives of broken people in a broken world. And to begin the work of renewal and restoration that is God's mission on this earth. And we ought to do that within the church, but we also ought to do it outside the walls of our church to a world that is in need of Christ. Let me close with this quote by N.T. Wright, and we'll finish here. Wright says this, What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of His creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, 
all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. God's recreation of his wonderful world, which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of his spirit, means that what we do in Christ and by the spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. Let's pray. Um, as I think about this message of the resurrection, um, this teaching in particular has really challenged me because as I was doing some real kind of soul searching in my own heart, one of the things that I actually had to kind of acknowledge is that there has been this sort of undercurrent of cynicism maybe even fatalism that has been creeping into my soul through each decade of life. When I look at the, the younger version of myself, the more idealistic version of myself, I, I just, I remember that there was a time when I was just so much more hopeful, so much more optimistic, so much more naive maybe, <laughs> that God could do great things through me and he could change the world, turn things upside down. And yet I think over the course of living life in a broken world, um, my faith has definitely taken some hits. And I had to acknowledge, even as I was preparing the sermon to preach to you, that I need to first preach this message to myself because I think the expectations that I have in my 50s now has been pulled back quite a bit. And I had to confess that there was this side of me that says, this is just the world. This is just the world. And it doesn't get any better than this. It's just, everything is just darkness. And people are just horrible. (laughs) And you just got to try to make it through this life with as few scars as you can. And that's the victory, you know, is just let God sort this mess one day when Jesus comes back again. And as I was looking at these passages, I couldn't think of a more unbiblical response to the resurrection than that. Because God is inviting us to be partners with Him in the renewal of this creation as we become His agents of change in this world. And it sort of stirred within my heart a reflection of what would that look like in my life to really believe that because of the resurrection, my labor is not in vain. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes that cynicism even creeps being a pastor in the church and preparing these sermons week after week. And, you know, I mean, hours upon hours to prepare these sermons. And sometimes this creeping fear comes into me going, or do I just entertain people for 45 minutes and then they just go about living their lives as they always do? And I know that that's not true. But I'm just confessing you that sometimes the cynicism creeps in.
And yet, here is this awesome promise of God. Be immovable, steadfast, because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's something about the resurrection that gives us hope. As you struggle to be the best parent you can be to your children and so many times feel like a failure. As you struggle at work to make a difference and try to be a witness but so often feel uh, like it's just a, a failed effort. Maybe some of you are involved in your community and involved in trying to get involved in these social justice issues and, and you just realize how frustrating it is to make any headway. And again, this message of God is that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. My hope is also that this message might challenge some of us that are basically sitting on our hands and just thinking, I've got the golden ticket. What more do I need to do? When I die, I'm going to be in heaven. And maybe what God would say to you is, man, you're missing the whole point. There's so much that I want to do through you in this life. And maybe through this message, God may be stirring your heart to look at your community around you. Look at what's happening in this country, in the Chicagoland area, and saying, what is it that I could advocate for the agenda of God in my society, in my neighborhood, in my city, to declare God's kingship in these ways? Would you just pray that for a few minutes and our worship team is going to lead us in a time of response through singing and before we close this worship.